Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to On The Continent, your one-stop shop for everything to do with European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. And I'm Andy Brassel. As it's the last On The Continent of the season, we've brought together three of our regular pundits for a Champions League final come season review special. Chock a block with the questions that you've been sending us over the last few days. Andy, what will be some of your standout memories from this season in European football? Um, it's, it's all about the goals, really. I will remember Karen Benzema's Champions League hat-tricks, uh, which were just phenomenal. Um, I'll remember Nicolo Zaniolo's winner in the Conference League final. Just an incredible story of redemption for him and for a small member of my family, the first time he's seen his Roma team win a trophy. Nicky will be telling us about some of the Italian side's prospects in Europe next season. Miguel will be on a little later to offer some of his thoughts on the broader competitive landscape going into next season. And, of course, we'll be discussing that Champions League final. We'll start with that with David, and I'll be asking them later whether it was won by the head of Ancelotti, the hand of Thibaut Courtois, or the foot of Vinicius Jr. David, well, it was Real Madrid's Champions League again. How did they do it this time? I think familiarity. Um, I think the way that Ancelotti has coached this team since he's come back in um, is not doing anything too crazy, doing anything too bold. He just did what he knows. He trusted the players, I think, a lot. I think you see other coaches come into big finals, come into big games. They make wild tactical decisions um, on certain things and it sometimes unsettles the you, you know the core of the squad or the team that is being put out there but 
everybody knew what that Real Madrid team was going to be pretty much. Um, and I think they won it purely through the basis of that, of just knowing each other's roles so, so well um, and, and being calm and unflustered. And I think Ancelotti has a you know a big say on, on how this one went. It's funny, when you saw them in attack, um, you, well, particularly Vinicius Junior uh, versus Trent Alexander-Arnold, you, you saw the, you, you knew what was coming eventually, at least I did. But when the, the rear guard action that they put up in midfield and in particular in defence was just amazing. Liverpool could not find a way through them. That, that was, I'm presuming, Carlo Ancelotti's strategy there. Yeah, absolutely. And I found it interesting. They did two things. Shall I say it? They didn't do two things that I think I talked about a lot in modern football these days. And that's firstly, pressing from the front. And secondly, playing out the back. I don't think they did neither, um, which was really interesting. Um, it was a, a very old school performance. It was almost like a, you know, like a, a Champions League winning performance from maybe 98 or 99. You know, it was it was played in that manner. And the defence was, was was key to that. Um, they didn't do anything bold or wild. Um, again, I think I thought Alaba was incredible. And for him to win Champions Leagues now in, in two different positions is a, you know, testament to how much of a fantastic player he is in Europe. And the point you were making, actually, Dotton, about getting Vinicius involved, I don't just think it's the, the, the winning goal. We talked before the, the final about how a big part of Liverpool's strategy in a defensive sense needed to be cutting off the problem at source. When he's served by Karim Benzema, he's so dangerous. They actually neutered Benzema pretty well, I've, I thought, Liverpool. But they found a different way to get Vinicius involved because, as I know you and Tim Vickery have been talking about, Dotton, that space behind Alexander-Arnold was always going to be absolutely vital for Vinicius to take advantage of. And I think if you look all through the Champions League campaign, David, especially through the knockout rounds, the difference between Real Madrid surviving in the competition and Real Madrid thriving in the competition has been the extent to how they can, how much they can get Vinicius involved. Absolutely. He's, he's been a big way, um, you know, of how they play. Um, I think if you look at the diagonals that they look to ping behind fullbacks, um, it's it's a strategy that they've used really, really well. You know, you've got Cruz and Modric in the centre who can spray passes any angle from anywhere. Um, you've got Benzema, who's just incredible at dropping off the absolute front line, coming down to the half line and then bringing uh, an, an on-run Vinny. Uh, into in, into the game, and also they can they can play out the back as well, so they can do it anywhere, whatsoever, and and they targeted that really well. And I really really like Trent Alexander Arnold. Don't get me wrong, I think he's a fantastic fullback, but he clearly has particular problems. Um, I think he can, can actually cover up his shortcomings against a certain type of winger, but not a winger like Vinny, somebody very fast, somebody very you know who's got a brilliant acceleration, um, excellent close control. He finds it very, very difficult against those um, sort of uh, wing backs, uh, wingers. Sorry. Do you know the? It seems a bit odd to ask this question, but it does seem as if this, the victory, has, um, in a way, elevated, uh, you know, Ancelotti as a coach. Look, we we know that he had a record before this. We know what he's done in the Champions League. Uh, we know what he's done as a player before that. But for some reason, I don't think he his name was 
at the forefront of deliberations about the best coach in the world. But now I think he's going to be there every single time you talk about that, not just because of his record in the Champions League. What do you think his legacy will be at, or what do you think his legacy is at Real Madrid and as well in the Champions League? I think this season has really affected his legacy, Dot, and I think that's absolutely right. The fact that he has come back to Real Madrid, particularly after that underwhelming spell at Everton, we've got to go back and remember they were not the favourites to win the league. Atletico were the favourites to win La Liga. So that he's closed that out and won the Champions League, which is always the the main thing for them, which is, I think, not what a lot of people expected at the start of the season. Of course, they got to the semi-final um, last season, but they were well beaten by Chelsea in the end, and it, it felt as if a moment had passed for that team. So the fact that he's not managed to just get them get a little bit more out of the experienced players, but to bring the younger players on, to get more out of Vinicius, who's had his best ever season, to start bringing Camavinga into it, to get huge contributions from Rodrigo. I think it's interesting. Ancelotti's quite comparable to Zidane in a way because they are two coaches who are not part of, we've talked about it before, they're not part of this modern cult of the coach. They are two very successful Real Madrid coaches for a reason, like Vicente Del Bosque, in that they're not self-aggrandizing. They're not coaches who sit around talking for ages about their philosophy. They don't build up their own myth. They talk about it in terms of the qualities of the players and what the players can do. That idea that at Real Madrid, you're a sort of superstar caretaker, really. And he's, I guess, the high end of that, the more glamorous end of that. And he's done that very, very well this season. He's one of the great adapters. He's always adapted ever since he didn't take on Roberto Baggio at Parma in the late 90s, earlier in his career, which he says is one of the biggest mistakes of his coaching career because he thought Baggio wouldn't fit his system. And he said after that, it made me realise that actually the system has to be defined by the players you have available rather than you having a system and imposing it on the players. And I think that that ability to rethink, that ability to reassess, that ability to self-analyse has given him his longevity. I, I know we think of him as a constant. And in terms of mood and in terms of temperament, he is. But he's also much a much better adapter than, than people think of. And I think when you look, David, about their plans for next season are very different to what they thought they would be. They thought they were getting Mbappe, who would have been a huge part of this youth movement they're looking to step into. But I kind of feel that even though it's still Florentino Perez's club, I feel that they're not likely to do anything crazy. Like, you know, they're, they're not going to go and buy Lewandowski to make up for the, the fact that they couldn't get Mbappe. I think they and Ancelotti are going to stick to the plan. What do you reckon? No, I think so too. Um, I think the market that, the current way that it actually is, is also going to dictate things as well. I think Florentino knows that, you know, that Mbappe and possibly Haaland uh, before he left, before he went for Man City, would have been exceptions, I think. They would have been players that they might have gone all out for and changed their tact for. I imagine they're going to look around at the market and go, OK, there's some fantastic young players about. 
there's some fantastic players in general about right now. Do we need to break the bank for them? Is our squad lacking a certain something? And the answer is probably nothing. They can just get a decent striker in, I think. They could honestly go into this market, get a decent centre-forward and a decent centre-mid in, and I think they will be completely fine. They're probably the two areas there I'd probably say, given especially the, the departures of certain players um, and, and the few, uh, question marks over certain players as well, futures, then I think that's all they would really need. And I'm not even seeing a superstar here either. Um, they've been linked strongly with Tuchemeni from Monaco as well. He forms part of that youth movement. Yes, he's going to cost a lot of money, but again, he, he kind of fits the mould, the core of players that they're, that they're looking to get. And I think what's great is as well, they've got a group of young players who are who are already key first teamers, but also key players ready to step up. So I think we've seen Valverde and Vinicius Jr. Uh, be a key part of the first team, the first 11 this season. And I think next season we'll see others uh, look to step up as well. That that uh, inability to get Mbappe to sign, notwithstanding, what you've got here is two entities that have nearly impeccable Champions League credentials. On the one hand, Real Madrid, their 14th uh, Champions League or European Cup uh, title. Uh, they struggled for the 10th, but since then it does seem as if they're back to, if you like, owning uh, this tournament to a certain extent. They've won eight titles out of eight uh, in the Champions League era. Ancelotti has now won four Champions League titles as a manager himself more than any other manager the question is for both Real Madrid and for Ancelotti whether they can do it again next season back to back yeah what do you reckon and I, I think I think that's a great question Don because I, I think we'll, we'll project forward to the coming years in the in, in the Champions League later but it, it does feel like Real Madrid will have another great chance next season because for them I think the most problematic point is when they have to move on from this generation with just incredible muscle memory in the in the Champions League who can get results out of under par performances so you're thinking Casemiro Kroos Modric who looks unbelievable by the way like like the level that he's playing at we've we've said it before he's playing at a better level than he did when he won the Ballon d'Or four years ago which is remarkable really um Benzema is another huge part of that and Benzema's maybe slightly different because you feel I feel that Benzema is his best ever version a little bit like Lewandowski actually in that by improving his physical condition um, you add that to the experience and he's, he's just away. The, the difficult thing, I think, is it's not whether Real Madrid can challenge again next season. They they definitely can, unless something unforeseen goes horribly wrong. And I, I agree with David. I think the, the sensible signings rather than the sexy ones are the, the, the way to go. The difficult point for them will be when, rather than the, the finishers, as they call it in modern football, um, like Rodrigo, um, Camavinga, Chuameni, if he, he, he comes in, when they're running the shop rather than just working in it, that will be, I think, the pivotal point for this era of Real Madrid. Because Real Madrid, where they are at the moment, is a continuation of Zinedine Zidane's Real Madrid. It's not as 
David was saying is it's not revolutionary what Ancelotti's done. It's building on what was already there rather than a clean break and, and starting all over again. So at this point, and eventually, you know, Kroos, I think, is probably closer to the end than Modric, actually, despite the ages. And Modric will, will have to go. They, they would have moved on from Benzema at some point. Um, it doesn't look like it will be Mbappe and probably probably not Holland as well. May, maybe Holland is more likely than Mbappe in the medium term. So I, I guess we're talking like three years down the line. When they have to replace those, that will be absolutely seismic for Real Madrid and for the Champions League, I think. David, I don't know if you want to come back on that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, I think uh, just looking at things are, and the links the past few days as well, I think Rafael Leao from Milan is somebody that they'll be looking at eventually. Um, you know, and and look, look at when Mbappe's contract ends as well. He's still going to be very, very young. And look, I don't want to restart this saga, the one that everybody's already sick of. Um, but you yeah, know that... It's a week off, man. <laughs> <laughs> so they're inevitably, I think, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, these stories of, oh, they'll never go back for him. No. I think they will. You know, if Mbappe is on the market again and, you know, he continues to progress at this incredible rate, then they're going to be about for him as well. But I think it is. It's going to be steady as he goes. It's going to be gradual replacements. I think a lot of errors that clubs make is they think they can just make a, a overhaul, a revolution. Real Madrid are doing it gradually and they'll gradually ease players in. Camavinga, you know, has has come in this season and been a key man from the bench. Who knows? He might he might start double the amount of games next season. He might start become more influential. Chuameni comes in from Monaco. He might start to play it as well. And then there you see a nice little gradual easing over and changing of the guard. But it is, I think, Andy made a great point. How are they going to um, be able to to handle these big Champions League nights? These these games where they haven't played well. Are they going to be able to turn it around? That Cruz and Modric have been done have been able to do so well. And just for the benefit of my brilliant intro, may I ask this question, which Finn probably won't use. Uh, in terms of the Champions League final, was it won by the head of Ancelotti, the hand of Thibaut Courtois, or the foot of Vinicius Junior for you? It was the, the head of Carlo Ancelotti for me. Andy? All three. All three. You can't have three body parts, man. Come on. It's either the that's hand or three body parts. That's, that's such a cop out, Brussels. <laughs> it is. It is. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for Thibaut Courtois' right hand. Good. The hand of God. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Nikki, I suppose we should start with asking perhaps the obvious question. Will Inter and Milan continue to dominate next season? Not necessarily, Dutton. Not necessarily. I think Italian football is is going to be open again next season at the top of the table. I think there's there's certainly open questions at the top of the table. And I think it's very early to even make confident predictions because I'm expecting quite a busy summer for some of the top clubs in Italy. I think we already know that... Um, Paul Pogba has left Manchester United at time recording. There's certainly a, a strong expectation in Italy and in, in Turin that he's going to end up back at Juventus, which is a statement signing already to sort of talk about to start the summer. Meanwhile, we've got a statement departure, I suppose, from Juventus as well, because Paolo Dybala is on the way out. And again, the, the expectation in Italy right now is very strongly that he ends up at, at Inter, even though there's some questions I have about how that's all going to work out. Um, I think... There's so much um, sort of to be determined in the market that, that could really influence this conversation. But but where I'm sitting right now, and perhaps this is, um, I don't know, perhaps this is just the sort of sense of inevitability you get when you've watched a team win the league nine times in a row, even though they haven't won it twice in a row. And perhaps you could go back to last summer and say, well, didn't you say this about Juventus last summer? But I, I do expect Juventus to be back very much at the sort of forefront of of the conversation in Italy again next season. And it's not just about Paul Pogba. It's about the fact that they signed Vlahovic in the middle of the season. And there were some people who were a bit disappointed with his form at times in the second half of the season. I think he, he certainly sort of didn't manage to sustain the impact that we saw from him in some early games. But he's clearly a, a brilliant footballer. Throwing on top of that, that Federico Chiesa missed most of this season with injury. And and ask yourself, well, if there's a a, a rejuvenated Paul Pogba, if there's a, a Dusan Vlahovic who understands his position and his role in, in Allegri's plans were better, if there's Federico Chiesa fit and in form and playing like the, the player we saw at the Euros, doesn't that all add up to a team that should be back competing for a Serie A title? No, I can still pick holes in this Juventus team and I can still express worries about Allegri. But I think when I look at all that in abstract, I think, yes, Juventus should be... I'm not saying they necessarily win it because that's hard to predict, uh, but they'll be, they should be a much stronger force next season than they were this. Nicky, I want to get to whether it's possible for Juventus to challenge at the back end of the Champions League next season in, in a little bit, but let's go back to Milan and Inter because they both made strides in different way in the Champions League this season. So Milan, their first Champions League campaign for, for a long time, and I think the performances were better than the results. And, the, you know, I think that gave them something to to build on domestically as, as as well. And I would expect them to to have a decent crack in the Champions League this season. Inter are interesting to me because 
they've got this sort of tricky financial situation. We're seeing that at the moment with the, I think, probably desire on all sides that they would like to repatriate Lukaku. But obviously, it's quite a complicated deal to put together financially. With you talking about them being in for Dybala, it looks like Henrik Mkhitaryan's going to leave Roma at the end of his contract and join them as well. Are Inter, who I think have a very good squad and a very good coach, and are, are ahead of Juventus for me at the moment, are they digging themselves a Juventus-shaped hole in signing players on freeze on quite big wages? Does this, like, I, I, I guess, hamstring them for the... For the future. Well, who was the director at um, Juventus who was sort of perceived as the leader <laughs> of that free agent signing place? No, and this is complicated because, of course, actually, Beppe Marotta, who I'm hinting at, did leave Juventus in part because he was the one looking at the Ronaldo deal and saying, hang on a bit, everyone, like, this is, we're going too far now. We can't, this doesn't make any financial sense. Um, but he is, yes, he's now the the architect of, of Inter's transfer policy. And it is funny that that is the question I've been wondering as well. Like, are they walking into the same mistakes? I, I, I have a lot more questions than answers right now about Inter's summer coming up because we've been hearing and, 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 and people at the club have been saying that this is going to have to be another summer that's, that's going to be tight on the spending. There's going to have to be a uh, talk of a 15% cut in the, in the wage bill. Um, this is not sort of something that anyone said officially, but there's certainly been reports that 80 million euros they're hoping to have as sort of the positive balance on their transfer to business this summer. That's hard to achieve. Like, unless you're going to sell one of your big names again, of course, last summer they sold Lukaku and Ashraf Hakimi. I don't really see where that money comes from. I can see how you make the wage bill cuts because you can say goodbye to Vidal. You can say goodbye to perhaps Alexis Sanchez. You can uh, generate something from selling a couple of players like Stefano Sensi and Roberto Gagliardini. Those are all the pieces of business that I would say I maybe expect in the outward direction. But to really get a big figure like 80 million euros, does that mean you're selling another big player? And if so, who is it? And the only names that are really sort of put forward that, that seem plausible to raise the big money at the moment are Alautaro Martinez, who was your top scorer, or... Uh, Alessandro Bastoni, who's the the great hope in defence, the, the the young Italian defender who was brilliant this season, really really great. Of course, you have also um, you've got Perisic leaving, which is another one for saving on the wage bill, but there's no fee coming that way. So difficult, difficult to see where you do all of that while also bringing in two players like Dybala and Mkhitaryan, who are going to be, as you're saying, Andy, big wage um, earners. And look. Paolo Dybala is an undoubtedly very talented footballer. Um, I've grown to find him um, frustrating over time, um, even though I, I still sort of stand for his talent. And I think you probably need to build a team around him if you want to get the most out of him. And when you build a team around him, you're not playing him as a number nine. You're playing him behind the attack and letting him roam because that's what he wants to do most freely. And then who leads the line? You're back to Edin Dzeko, who age, age is a concern, whose performances in the second half of the season weren't what they were in the first half of the season, who isn't really, even at his best, wasn't sort of a um, facing the goal number nine. He was himself much more of a, of a back to goal number nine. I I don't get Dybala in that Inter team, and yet I feel like that is the one that I'm most confident is going to happen because Dybala doesn't want to leave Italy. I don't think he even wants to go far from Turin and Milan is right there on the doorstep and if the club's willing to do it I think that's where he'll go Mkhitaryan I would say 
hold your horse a little bit because that one is not at all done. And I think Roma are now pushing to hold on to him. And I think that there may be another twist on that one. But certainly if it does happen, Andy, then yes, I, I agree with you. Like you're you're putting a lot of eggs in this sort of free transfer basket and um, you're perhaps adding a lot of players who do the same sorts of things on the pitch without potentially, especially if Lautaro does leave, giving yourself the, the, the leeway to go out and get a proper number nine. I suppose um, it's all good and well to not want to dig yourself into the kind of financial hole that Juventus found themselves in, and not least with the Cristiano Cristiano Ronaldo uh, signing and wages. But it all depends on whether or how much you want domestic success to translate into success in Europe, because the other major players in the Champions League, they're spending, they're not thinking about the hole that Juventus found themselves in. How how serious are particularly the top two, but also perhaps the top four or stroke five in Serie A uh, about having European success? Um, I suppose it all depends like what you consider European success. I would say that Roma, who aren't the top four, they achieved European success this season. They won the Conference League, but it's not the success that I think you're, 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 you're talking about, which is the Champions League. And I think realistically, my feeling is that all of the Italian clubs are still a step away from where they need to be to compete in that competition again. Juventus, again, to me, I, I can see them being the closest if it all works. Like if Pogba comes back and returns to the Pogba that he was under Antonio Conte and Max Allegri before he left and went to Manchester United, that's a huge upgrade, right? The player he was at Juventus before he generated that 100 million euro plus move was a pretty spectacular player. If Federico Chiesa comes back and plays at the top of his game and takes another step forward as he, he can because he's still a young player. If Dusan Vlaovic explodes and scores goals at the rate he did for Fiorentina before he, he went to, to Juventus, there's there's enough there for me to believe that that team can go somewhere. And Max Allegri has been to Champions League finals before. Inter, I really struggle with. They've taken a step forward in the Champions League in a sense. They did reach the last 16 this season, which they never did, of course, under Antonio Conte, but they hadn't done it under anyone in a decade. So that was a big step forward. But for all the reasons we've just been talking about, I have concerns about them. Like what's going out this summer and what's staying? You know, they were, despite not finishing top of the table, I think they were probably the best team in Serie A this season. They just took their eye off the ball at a critical moment and let Milan get in front of them. So... The talent is, is there at the moment, but will it become next summer, become the, the end of the summer? I'm not sure. Then Milan are probably the most interesting out of the group. I don't think I see Milan as being ready to go all the way in the Champions League. I just don't see that they're, they're ready to make that sort of size of step forward. But I do think that their readiness to compete in Europe is probably underestimated because this season they landed in the most difficult imaginable Champions League group. They beat Atletico Madrid. They went to Anfield and gave Liverpool one of the sort of um, less straightforward games that they had at Anfield, I suppose, up until they lost to Inter at Anfield. Um, they they have a young team, so they're no longer the youngest team in Serie A, but I think the average age of, of the team that um, Pioli fielded this season was something like the fourth or fifth youngest team in Serie A. You've got Rafael Leal, who's ready to take a big step forward if you don't sell him. Took a big step forward this season. You've got... Um, uh, a, a sort of full squad from the back to the front of young players. Mike Mannion in goal, who was spectacular 
Fikayo Tomori and Pierre Kalulu, who have only played together as a partnership for, for half a season, but seem like they're really moving in a great direction. You've got Sandro Tonali, who took a huge leap this season, and, and Ben Asser still alongside him, even if um, Kessier is leaving. You've got a really young, brilliant core in this team. They probably still need uh, a younger option up front than Giroud and, and Ibrahimovic, who you a true number nine to fill that spot. Um, they still need um, more depth. But I think when you look at their Champions League run this time and talk about, yes, some uneven performances, really disappointing against Porto, I thought. Consider the fact that really a lot of these players were playing in the Champions League for the first time ever. And consider the fact that this was a season in which it was justifiable to put all of your focus on winning the league because Milan hadn't done that for a decade, more than a decade. I think next season I expect Milan to to get at least get through the group stage and and that takes them close. So do I think they're ready to compete all the way to the end? I mean, who knows? Again, things I can't say at this moment in time. They're just um, in the process of being bought out by Redbird, the investment fund. If Redbird want to put some money up and and, and spend on this club, then maybe it's got more potential than, than even I imagine. But I, I think they're a team that, that should be aiming for at least the knockout rounds, maybe the quarterfinals this season at the Champions League and, and see where you go from there. Nikki, you touched on Roma and um, their European success. Obviously, they'll be hoping to get into that top four. I suppose on paper, Napoli look the most vulnerable, don't they? Because it feels as if they're at that, almost at that sort of end of an era type period. It, it felt that maybe the thing that stopped them winning the league this season is that their best players give or take Fabian Ruiz and maybe to a lesser extent Khalidou Koulibaly aren't really at their peak level anymore. Insigne's going, looks like Mertens might go as well. Koulibaly's leaving it all up in the air for the moment, despite having been offered the captaincy and a, a new contract. Now, Aurelio Di Laurentiis has come out and said, um, you know, we, we, we still want to try and win the league next season, despite the rumours of him like maybe tearing it all down and maybe making a a, a few cutbacks. I, I mean, what what will they be able to do in the Champions League under Spalletti? How are they going to look going into the next season? And what do you think are Mourinho's chances of building on what he's already done at Roma and catching them? For sure, as we sit here today, Napoli look like the most vulnerable, as you said, Andy. And I and I think that, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm a bit stuck record on this one. Unfortunately, some of the things are, are, are still unknown. Um, Spalletti sort of said at his end of season press conference, well, um, I, I want to see um, uh, Merit and um, Koulibaly and... Um, sorry, not Merit, um, Mertens and Koulibaly and Espina here next season. And, it, and it's possible that none of them are going to be there next season. Furthermore, and I think this is really the biggest one, it's possible that Victor Osimhen won't be there next season. I think when you look at Napoli's season in the whole, to me, this last one was a was a massive disappointment. I think that they, they are the one team I really think was capable of, of much more than they, than they pr- produced in the end. And you do wonder a little bit not that they shouldn't have been able to do better even without him, but you do wonder a little bit if the whole season goes differently, if Victor Osman doesn't get injured when he does. Victor Osman gets injured at the start of the season, misses a bunch of time leading into the Cup of Nations, doesn't go to the Cup of Nations, but basically effectively misses all the time he would have done as well as some time before. They're a different team with him. And again, he's the one asset who is most saleable for the club. He's got talk of a 100 million euro price tag. And if 
uh, Napoli ever intend to recoup the the money they spent on him, which was a club record fee. It was over 50 million euros. This might well be the summer to do it. That changes a lot in their outlook for me, whether or not he stays, because you're already saying goodbye to Lorenzo Insigne. I, I think they're going to say goodbye to Mertens, even though it breaks my heart a bit, because Dries Mertens wants to stay in Naples. The fans love him in Naples, and, and I think he fits in Naples, but I think he... Um, he's going to to be one of those sort of Alerio de Laurentiis business decisions where they they don't uh, keep hold of him, and and for the record, by the way, I, I think while Inter we were talking about spending taking the risk of spending uh, too much investing too much in the free transfers like like Juventus used to, I, I like Mertens better than Dybala if they're going to go down that route. I know he's older, but I think he's. I'm more confident in what he would contribute to that team. I think he actually would give Inter something different. I think he would be a really valuable, perhaps super subtype figure for them if they wanted to go that way. Um, th- there's going to be subtractions there. And De Laurentiis has always run his ship this way. He's always been pretty effective at balancing the books. And that's something that's actually to his credit. Lots of clubs in Italy don't. And, and you have to give him some sort of, um, some some sort of acknowledgement for that. But, what it all looks like next season is is a big question. And, and the thing that makes me doubt Napoli in, in Italy and in Europe in the end is it's been years since it's felt like there's any sort of calm in that club. And it feels constantly like there is partly De Laurentiis and partly perhaps other figures in that front office of that team who are always just undermining the manager's work who are always sort of sowing these seeds of uncertainty about the future who are always making it difficult for any manager there to feel confident about what comes next and what's the next bit and even again that press conference from Spalletti's last one to end the season just even though he's going to be back next season it felt underpinned by uncertainty to me and I think there's something structural at Napoli that has stopped them from achieving everything they should and when you say on top of that, end of an era, goodbye Insigne, goodbye perhaps several other players who've been influential. I, I can't see them being in a strong position next season. In fact, I, I find it hard to see them moving anything but backwards from where they were this season. When this moment has entered, we've invented a group. And with a group, it's possible to do these things that we've done. Today, we're champions of Italy. Miguel, this season uh, was a season when we got an insight into what the new Champions League format is going to be from 2024. It's actually been verified now. Just for the clarification of our listeners, what will change in the Champions League from two years' time? Uh, Well, from the knockouts, it'll stay relatively the same. But the biggest change will be it goes from 32 teams to 36. Uh, The old four team group that groups that we've basically I suppose all grown up with in football they're gone replaced by a Swiss system where all the teams are in the same group but only play eight games based on seeding so like depending on how they work it the fourth the fourth seeded team will play the 16 seeded team and the 12 seeded team or something along those lines and then um the top 16 go sorry the top eight go, go through directly and then positions from 9 to 24 go into an extra playoff round to decide the last 16. Quite convoluted, not clear, um, and all, of course, ultimately an evasion of um, the primary issue in the Champions League for a long time, which has been financial disparity, which is why the group stage is so predictable. This doesn't address that. It sidesteps it. Um, it makes the Champions League mostly a bit of a convoluted mess, 
or in the in the words of one um, <laughs> director of the European club to me, whose team have qualified, a monster. Uh, I suppose at the, at the very least, the knockout stage, which is really where the Champions League gets going, is is will mostly be similar. Although there's even talk now that that could be also at least modified, so it's no longer based on an open draw, but will be a kind of um, a tennis Wimbledon style seeding system there as well. Uh, so yeah, the face of the competition is changing considerably. Ultimately, I suppose this is the biggest thing really, it guarantees more of the, I mean, it guarantees more of the teams more games, and by definition that ends up being the uh, the wealthiest teams, which is, comes back to what all this is about. It's it's it, okay, It's not UEFA doing their own Super League, but it is institutionalising a lot of what the Super League was about. Andy, what do you make of it? What you were saying there, Miguel, is it's a bit like um, the sort of bracket you would get in the back end of American sports, isn't it? In a, in a playoff situation, I think that's what we're we're sort of heading towards. I, I think really in that context, it's inescapable that we're getting more and more U.S. influence and ownerships in in clubs. I mean, that's something that's happening quite broadly in Italy. Um, is, is something that could happen in France more with some of the, the sales of clubs and parts of clubs that are up for sale at the moment. So it, it feels as if we are heading more in this direction, particularly when you consider the spectacle of the Champions League final and the direction that people like Nasser Al-Khalifi, the president of Paris Saint-Germain, would like to draw it into, comparing it to the, the Super Bowl. Though, obviously, having the musical act at half-time rather than at the beginning, if you're going to properly copy the, copy the Super Bowl, is something that would probably work a bit better. Uh, I, just on that, I was at the final on Saturday um, in Paris, and it was quite... I mean, obviously, it was. It, we, we were extremely fortunate. It wasn't a much worse event. People did suffer quite serious injury. But I suppose one moment of lightness amid all that was actually the reactions, <laughs> Camilla Cabello or whatever her name is, her um, her her her, uh, her opening show where you could basically hear the fans chanting over it. She she apparently did this tweet complaining about it, and I mean it was quite it, it, that in its own way was actually uplifting because it was just a just a rejection yeah. of what this is, which is something that it's nothing to do with the event whatsoever. Um, and of course, I suppose that's people are talking about that being in the next potential evolution that it's not just going to be a final. Yeah, that's kind of a Super Bowl end, but they'll it'll be it'll be kind of a, a last four, um, but there are still fan groups lobbying against that. Uh, I I must say I don't. We probably haven't seen the last modification to this post twenty twenty four model. Can we see already the way that teams are preparing for twenty twenty four? I was thinking in terms of the kind of decisions that they're going to be making over the summer and perhaps one or two clubs have made already in terms of signings? Well, it's actually, from that perspective, it probably has the most effect on England and then, by its nature, has a kind of a domino effect on the rest of the game. Because, obviously, because since it's gone to 36 places, two of those places are going to be dependent on coefficient from leagues. So the best performing leagues will get will will really get will get an extra place. Now, ju- given that the wealthiest leagues tend to be the best performing, what that really means is 
England's top four is going to be a top five for most of the future. That, that, that's the way it's going. It's direction travel. And clubs are making decisions. So, for example, Arsenal are set to spend big this summer. Tottenham, who did qualify next year, are set to spend big this summer because it's not much of a risk because suddenly the chances of missing out on the Champions League are lessened. Now, of course, what that, 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 that's usually relevant for the rest, rest of the European game because it just, I suppose, stretches the disparity between England and a few super clubs and the rest. And it's a, it's a point we've made in the show throughout this season, but it, it does feel like we're getting to a point where in England, due to its financial wealth, due to the broadcasting contracts, are kind of, they're kind of hollowing out the rest of Europe in the way the rest of Europe hollowed out South America 10 to 15 years ago, bar a few major clubs. I think that's the thing. When you um, look at what's happened in, in, in terms of the, one of the last major changes to the, the Champions League, where you have the top four leagues having four direct qualifiers, that is something where the difference is still felt, that sense of certainty. And if we're moving towards a bigger version of that, because the gap between, say, I don't know, say Germany and Italy and France, for example, not just that you only have three potential qualifiers in France, but it's potential qualifiers. The top two qualify automatically. And we we talked about it last week. The difference between second and third in, in, in France is huge because... You know, you can't really plan for the coming season with any sort of certainty if you're Monaco because you, you're taking a huge risk if you go all in on constructing a Champions League squad knowing that there are two possible points at which you could fall short of the Champions League. That is a massive difference in terms of um, salary budget, in terms of what you want to spend on on player fees, all that sort of stuff. And the ability of the fourth place team in Germany, Spain, Italy and England to plan with certainty going forward, I think has a massive effect on on the way they do things. Now, th- th- this is different for these clubs, of course, because they're, they're both champions. But you look at Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain, they are clearly moving, not so much with 2024 in mind, but with the coming years in the Champions League in mind, with the arrival of Haaland, with the re-signing of Kylian Mbappe. You know, those are are big moves. I think in terms of Paris Saint-Germain, their signing of Mbappe is indicative of a new departure. Interestingly, it's holding on to a player, but it's saying this player is our totem from now on. We're going to try and work in a different way. We're going to try and move in a different way. And I think if you look at actually all of the the clubs that are going to be major contenders for this title next year and the year afterwards, it's very notable that they're all shopping in the same pool. So, you know, of course, we had Real Madrid in for Mbappe as well. Paris Saint-Germain trying to steal Aurelien Chouameni away from Real Madrid. It doesn't look like that's going to work. Of course, Liverpool were very keen on on him as well. So all these teams are looking to go younger as well. As but so they're they're looking not just to fill with superstars. I think there's a, an acknowledgement that it's not just a superstar driven sport, but a very, very athletic sport in the back end of the, the Champions League. And I think we can see that in in some of the moves that that, that teams are making. And arguably the um the 
contact that we've had from one of our listeners, John, on Instagram, um, perhaps addresses that point, or at least puts a question about that point into our conversation, which is, have we reached a point where players have too much power in football? Because if, as Andy is saying there, that some of the signings, at least the big signings, particularly Mbappe and Haaland, are with a view to, in City's case, in both their cases, PSG and City, finally winning the Champions League sort of thing, then it does give, whether it's about superstars or athleticism, it does give those players in particular an awful lot of power, doesn't it, Miguel? I think only the very top end. Um, ultimately, 90-95% of players will, will need a certain amount of security themselves. It's still a relatively precarious career, given it's short, given injury can dictate so much. But, but it does feel like, and, and, and like from, from talking to kind of agents who work in this field and, and that, um, we are kind of seeing the natural conclusion or the inevitable conclusion of what the Bosman was and the really top stars realising their full value. And which is, which is basically, if clubs are willing to spend so much on these absolute stars, well, why are we in a situation where the, the money goes to the club that sells me when it could be coming to me, and that, that, that's that's pretty much, I mean, like a, a, a pretty clear example of that is actually what happened with Erling Haaland, where I mean, there was, there was I remember when when that was announced, there was some criticism of Dortmund for getting themselves into that situation and how cheaply they were losing the player, but ultimately that was down to a calculation when Dortmund signed him. When okay, he was he had a lot of talent, but he wasn't an absolutely sure thing. Where but the the deal that they struck was basically, and, and this is the deal they've struck throughout Haaland's career, where we'll sign for this amount, you'll obviously get the benefit of this player in your team, so Dortmund did well out of it, but only if the release clause is such. Uh, and so, and so, and so that in effect meant that once Haaland um, I, I like, went, to, went to the next level, once, it, once he uh, thrived at Dortmund, obviously he had suitors, who were willing to come in and pay that price, and it meant rather than those clubs paying 100 to 150 million or whatever it would have been, if they paid a release clause, and a lot of a lot of money went to uh, the players' camp. I think that the point that you're making about um, players or the, or the absolute elite players having that power of attorney, Miguel, and particularly with Mbappe running down his, his contract, I think the interesting thing is that's something that is a direct consequence of the way that the bigger clubs have, have, have played their cards. I think I think if you look at Real Madrid, um, look at some of the players who they let get really close or even to the end of their contracts, if you look at um, Real Madrid with Angel Di Maria, Xavi Alonso, Meza Ozil, all in the last decade have got to the last year of their contract, which is counterintuitive to a lot of what we would consider transfer best practice when you're talking about retaining player value you know you want to have um, a, a new contract done before they get really into the last two years of their contract let alone the last one year of their contract but that's the thing isn't it that these elite clubs exist on an entirely different plane where they can say and I think Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain are, are in this this area as well that where they can say well, look, if, if you think you can go elsewhere and get more, do it. How are you going to do that? You know, I think that's a, that's a huge part. Whereas Real Madrid, it was more, 
where are you going to go that's better than this? So that's slightly different, I think, with Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain. It's not where are you going to go that's better than this, although that's probably part of it as well. Where that's, are you going to go? Happen. Where are you going to get? Where are you going to get paid more? Yeah, exact, exactly. I, I, I would agree. I mean, I just wonder, Miguel, what you think in terms of the direction in which PSG and Manchester City in particular are going with recruitment. The fact that FFP is being eased off and we're looking into you know, a, a, a different sort of revenue-based form of um, financial sustainability going forward. They've got a little bit more freedom at the moment. Is it an inevitability that one or both of these teams are going to win the Champions League in the coming year? Or are we more informed by what's gone on with those clubs in the last couple of years in the back end of the Champions League? Uh, it's, it's an inevitability. Even if it doesn't happen in the next five years, it'll happen in the next ten. I mean, if you look at even the kind of the direction travel with these clubs... It's only about 10 years ago when people were still saying things like, these clubs will never actually, be, they'll, they'll have all the money, but they'll never actually be top because they don't have the heritage or the legacy of these clubs. Whereas what, we, what, we, what are we seeing now in 2022? Both of them dominate their league. City at the moment are almost, turn, we're actually, because Klopp is there, um, almost like the Dortmund days, City are almost <laughs> turning the Premier League into um, the, its own Bundesliga. Uh, the, all the, the kind of most expensive players are going there, are going to these clubs now. And, 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 and this is the way football works. Well, there's a 90% correlation between what you, what you can pay in wages and how the tables finish. Money does win out. The, the one hope, I suppose, is that money can also breed a certain complacency, which is arguably what's happened with Paris Saint-Germain. And that, mean, and that means other clubs will be more creative. But you're still kind of, you're always fighting... And not a losing battle, but you're always playing catch up just because money. Is, I mean, it matters so much in that regard. You can just and look, look at look at it. Say even the kind of direction of travel in England now, where there's talk of Salah potentially going to Manchester City, um, and it, it, yeah, it, it does it does greatly concern me. And I, I mean, while we do have a competitiveness moment among about eight to nine super clubs. With the, what you're saying there about kind of the the evolution of financial fair play and essentially its erosion. I mean, I, I, I do think we're not too far off an absolute horror scenario where football, the very top end of the game, is really just a plaything for state-run clubs and so, by extension, by some of the most problematic states on earth. And th- this is the sport that kind of we all invest so much time in. It's the most democratic and universal of sports. And for it to, to become that, to me, is an absolute nightmare prospect. I, I guess that's the other half of it, really, isn't it? You, you've got to look at those elite-level competitors and what Liverpool managed to do to lock their squad down in terms particularly of Mane and, and, and Salah and uh, what happens at Bayern with th- th- them being led forward by a very uh, new stewardship group. You know, I, I think it's fair to say that no one outside Bayern and a lot of people inside Bayern aren't completely sold on Salah Hamazic as a sporting director and Oliver Kahn as he runs the club, which he's unproven at. Um, could do with perhaps a stronger sporting director. The way those two clubs go, Dot Knight, I think will really affect what we can expect from the back end of the Champions League in the next couple of years as well. And I'll tell you one thing, from what I'm gathering from this conversation, it does seem as if the price tag for the 
top, top players in Europe is just going to keep going up and up and up and up and up because of the club's desire to win that Champions League. We're not talking price tag, the wages, I'd say. The wages, well, yeah, obviously, the from tag, what we said. Yeah. yeah, the, wa- the wages and the no, no, but it's an important distinction. It's like, you know, you were saying a moment or two ago, Andy, that it's, you know, why should the money go to the clubs rather than to me? But um, in that respect, I think our listener has a point about the players having, well, <laughs> you may not argue that it's too much power, but so much power that <laughs> the they are calling the shots, as it were. And a reminder that you can tweet us at Football Ramble, at Dotton Adebayo and at Andy Brassel anytime throughout the season. Uh, this tweet from Damiano, Andy, do you have a summer transfer that you would love to see for narrative purposes? Well, I, I guess at this time of the season, Dotton, but this time at the end of the season, we get all reflective and maybe a little bit nostalgic as well. I can't help noticing that both Alexandre Lacazette and Corentin Tolisso are out of contract. Come home to Lyon. That's what we want to see, especially for Tolisso. Maybe a, a short-term deal for him would give him an option to try and get himself in the France World Cup squad for Qatar. He needs to be at a place where he's going to play loads. I know he's got big ambitions to win the Champions League again. He feels like he's letting Lyon down gently, as Lacazette might be as well. But I would love to see it. Damiano said, for narrative purposes, not for your that subjective... That is narrative Leon, purpose. Yeah, it's also somewhat subjectively on fan base purposes as well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, come on, coming home and reclaiming a place at the, the World season. Cup. I mean, what could be better <laughs> than that? Now, we're going to take a few weeks off from OTC, but we will be back with more over the summer and you can get in touch at any time during the course of the break uh, with the show. Uh, do remember at Football Ramble, at Dotton Adibio and at Andy Brassel. Until then, thanks for listening. Football Ramble Presents is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.